Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to Government vs. the Robots. This week we're going to be taking a look at what we can learn from Ireland's recent referendum on allowing abortion. Liz Carolan is a data and transparency expert with a particular interest in elections. She's worked for the Institute for Government and the Open Data Institute and most recently founded the Transparent Referendum Initiative in Dublin. We'll be picking up where we left off last time by looking at how Who Targets Me was able to inform Irish voters about what was happening in their referendum. We'll be asking which outside countries and groups tried to influence the Irish referendum, what digital campaigners learned from paying close attention to the adverts targeted at citizens, and what big institutions and technology companies should be doing next on the question of regulation. I sat down with Liz as the sun rose over North London and asked her to tell me a little bit more about her career so far. Liz, thanks very much for joining me this morning. Thanks, Jonathan. Great to be here. Can you kick off by telling everybody a little bit about your career to date? Sure, yeah. Um, so I uh, started out actually doing quite a bit of stuff in community settings. So I worked in the Balkans and in Ireland with refugees and migrants and things. Um, but then I, I retrained as a political scientist. Um, and I worked at the Institute for Government here in London uh, for three or four years. They're primarily working with politicians and leaders on, on how they can be more effective. Um, I did a stint in Sierra Leone in the president's office which is sort of where my interest in transparency came from let's just put it that way and uh, so then for the last I guess sort of four or five years I've been working in the field of data transparency around the world and you mentioned um, Sierra Leone being an eye-opener in terms of transparency and yeah. a lot of people might jump to thinking about terrible things that you saw in terms of corruption but I guess it's also about how in- potentially that may have been about how important transparency is in order to drive progress as much as uh, uh, opaqueness prevents it. That's right. I think um, we often take it for granted that we're able to see how good different services are and to choose the the best ones based upon that information. Um, I think, you know, systems and structures and governance and everything works better when more people have information about how it's working, like basic you know, let's address information asymmetries. I think um, it, it's also about let, let's create the right incentives for people. I think most people want to try and do well, but um, quite often when things are opaque, um, the wrong signals and the wrong incentives end up being the ones that determine how people behave. So for you, the politics came before the data in terms of combining the two kind of obvious parts of your career to date? Exactly, yeah. Um, when I, when I, so I started out at the Open Data Institute a couple of years ago, and actually one of the first things that I did was I did a little uh, one of those little weekend coder boot campy things, um, and that was mostly so I could learn how to communicate with 
<laughs> with technologists um, and to understand their, their world and, and where they're coming from. And I think um, quite a lot of what I end up doing is trying to be a bit of an intermediary or a translator between um, the folks who get and understand you know, data and technology, but whose brains are kind of trained to think, to think of the world, almost in terms of cause and effect. <laughs> and then policy communities who, you know, by their very nature, are trying to understand the complexities of society and the way we interact with things and unintended consequences is a huge issue in, in policy. Um, and those two communities have to... They're, like they're all clashing at the, right at the moment um, in lots of ways. Um, and uh, yeah, but so, so, so for me, the, the, the politics, the governance bit came first and then the kind of data thing was, was a way of, of achieving ends. And for people listening, we're going to talk in a moment about the Irish referendum and particularly um, Liz has worked on uh, a, an initiative which built on the technology made available from Who Targets Me and we talked to Sam Jeffers in the last episode. Oh, so it's nice. good to have a really practical kind of application of the potential of Who Targets Me to follow up with but I know that that the Irish uh, the recent Irish referendum wasn't the first election that you've worked on and do you have is it fair to say you've got a particular interest in elections or is it just that elections are part of the political cycle and therefore they're the time that stand out things have happened for you you could call it an interest you could call it an obsession I think ever since I was uh, about eight and my 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 mom brought me in when she was when she was voting um, I have had a, an obsession with elections I think um, they sometimes make me quite quite emotional like sort of this idea that like the views of everyone matter equally and that we are coming together and combining those views in order to come up with like a, a big picture of, of, of how we want to live um, I, I find that like really quite quite a beautiful idea and a couple of years ago, I was um, working with in, in Burkina Faso, kind of in and out, um, with a, a fantastic team on the ground of people who blended government and civil society. You know, who were trying to sort of push the use of technology in in that government forward, and they had some really cool success. Like they were doing things like paperless cabinet meetings, and um, and this is you know in a, in an incredibly poor country. And so in, uh, gosh, I think 2014, there was um, revolution slash kind of overthrow of um, the guy who'd been running that country for, for quite a long time and quite undemocratically. And so uh, straight away, the, the guys on the ground were on to me about trying to do, trying because they want to try and use their skills to support the transition. Um, so we, 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 we worked together on, on, a, on a project there for, for, for that election. And what have been the kind of, for you, the best elections that you've been involved in and why and which have been the worst? Well, that, I mean, that was that was a fantastic um, process because it was, it was very, very simple. A technology can be as complicated as you want it to be, but um, I, I think the, the goal of what you want to achieve should be the thing that you're focusing on. And there, so in Burkina Faso, the, the, there was a big risk around the gap between when people voted and when people heard what the result was. We saw it in Kenya, we see it in lots of countries. Um, anything you can do to narrow that gap on time, you're reducing the window for bad things to happen. And so in, in, in that context, we worked with a whole range of, of actors and to, you know, convince lots of heads of things to, to basically just use use technology to just to, to close that window. So people voted. I think it was a was it was it like, say, day one. I can't remember if it was a Monday. Polls closed that evening. And by midday the next day, the first sort of real time results 
were being distributed. That was, you know, real time data is the is the nerdy part. It involved satellites and committees sitting in rooms with, with technical folks. It was, it was quite fun. But what mattered was by midday the next day, when the rumors were starting to circulate about things that had gone wrong, those rumors were supplanted by real information. So people weren't talking about, oh, I heard something bad happen in district. They were saying, oh, the results are in for this small town. What's happened there? How does that compare to um, to what the civil society observers on the ground like that? So you, so you can kind of you can shape the conversation. So I think um, like the most exciting projects to me are always ones where there's a real and tangible problem, and you're able to just find a way that like um, that, that that you can address that, or that you can do something quite ideally simple um, to make it work better. The most recent election that you've been involved in working on was obviously the Irish referendum. That's right. right. That's right. Yeah. Um, and you established something called the Transparent Referendum Initiative. Yes. And well done for getting it right. The name. <laughs> uh, which did what? Yeah. So this was a, uh, an entirely volunteer project that, um, again, it just tried to address the simple problem of, well, simple, dark ads. So money could be used to spread information during um, the, the lead up to a voting process. Uh, information that couldn't be seen by the kind of people who could check whether it's true, um, who could check where the money's coming from, and who could build a bigger picture of what was going on. So we worked with uh, who targets me with, with with Sam. They do they, they do stellar work. Um, about six hundred people from across Ireland downloaded the who targets me plugin onto their laptops, um, and so we were able to then build the first ever, I think, sort of real-time database of ads that were um, being placed targeting Irish voters in relation to the referendum and, and, and put that into the, in, into the public domain. As a result of that, there was we, were, we, we kind of were able to get uh, journalists, in particular investigative journalists, to write scores of stories, a lot of them in domestic news, but, you know, across like BBC and CNN and New York, New Yorker and Wired and Politico and, and all, all, all the good sites that were just scrutinising and telling the story of what was happening. I mean, it helped. The referendum was in May and obviously in March the Cambridge Analytica story broke. So that, you know, I think gave a huge sort of impetus to the interest in particular the international interest of what was happening. Um, but yeah, and then the companies themselves, so it was in particular Facebook and Google, who were providing advertising services, slowly as we were going through, started to change some of their policies and in the end took some really quite drastic steps. So can you tell me a bit about once you started looking at ads and where the money was coming from and what was being said, what did you find? Yeah, we found um, a kind of almost a parallel information environment. So you had the official campaigns who had similar messages online to what they had on posters. In Ireland, we love election posters. You know, if you're in, if you're ever in Dublin or anywhere in the country during an election or a referendum, you get to see all the faces up there. Um, and the country was plastered in posters now for this for this referendum. And so, you know, there there was there was one kind of information universe online that reflected that. But then there was a, a kind of a dark slightly deeper layer of things that were going on Um, and a lot of that was coming from entirely untraceable accounts some of it from overseas accounts and that was I personally think much more reflective of international debates around abortion Um, and some of it was coming like had content directly from overseas on abortion we also saw like a whole range of um, sort of strange and dark tactics, um, you know, such as 
well, well, there was the there was the targeting of activists with incredibly graphic images and trolling and abuse and these kind of things. Um, there was also the you know there was one particular um, uh, Facebook page that was sharing personal stories of women who who had used abortion services in the past and you have to you used to have to travel to, to do so, and they you know their account got locked because of kind of mass you know reporting of things and one star ratings and all the all the kind of the, the usual tactics i mean i think um they they weren't terribly effective uh, in the in the long run and well we can talk about the the, the polling data if you're into that but um yeah it was just i i think there was just a lot of things going on online and uh, what our project was able to provide I think more than anything was a focal point and a contact point for people to be able to surface things that were happening and so we could sort of pull that together and we also were able to build um, really quite good relationships with Facebook and we had a dedicated email address that the campaigns had as well so where there was really really problematic things going on we could just send that through uh, to Facebook and, and get action taken on it and that's not what they do now in all contexts. So we've talked quite a lot on Government versus the Robots about political adverts, both the potential for how things are going to change and also how they're being used at the moment. And you've painted a picture of of dark ads. And actually, in the last couple of days, as we're recording, I think Twitter and Facebook have committed to ending dark ads, which we might talk about in a moment. Um, but the the question that I have is, is of, of what you saw, it's one thing to sort of pay for a an ad and not have transparency about who's paid for it it's another thing to to set up a page that's deliberately about creating emotional viral content that doesn't even mark itself out as advertising so where you saw for example a page of people telling stories related to abortion in, in their lives was that something that was being done by a campaign within ireland or is that something that was being manufactured as a sort of external attempt to influence things yeah, so I mean that that particular campaign was um, was was being run by by a couple of volunteers in in Ireland. Where the advertising piece comes in is, I think it's quite often like the last mile, and so you know there was particular examples of you know these sort of I I I think he was British this conservative young guy um who had gone to a pro-choice rally and had filmed people and was kind of a bit disingenuous about what his motives were had edited it to look like you know the kind of pro-choice movement where you know they wanted abortion until the point of birth and these kind of these kind of things uh, which is which is misleading in terms of the, of the campaign and so that content it was circulating on YouTube and it was all over the place. But it was the advertising was like almost like the um, one way in which that content was able to get in front of targeted people, right? Rather than those who may have actively sought it out or you know having to sort of go through the effort of trying to make content go viral. Um, and so what what we found quite a bit was that where we were able to use that kind of payment bit, like that last mile, in order to identify different things that were going on, that provided useful leads, um, in particular for journalists to then explore and sort of go back um, and sort of go back up the chain and try and figure out well, what content was being produced and, you know, to, to see what Reddit forums it was being discussed on, what was happening there, how this connected to, to the bigger campaigns. And so you mentioned that you there was an American influence. It wouldn't be the first time America's been trying to influence Irish politics. Um, anywhere else that you noticed people were getting involved from, presumably the UK as well? So... 
on the international influence piece, there's, there's two parts. So we did find overseas groups directly targeting Irish people with advertising. So most of those were in the US, but there was a Canadian group, there was a group in the UK, a group in France, and then some some slightly strange things happening um, with European party groups um, who were who were supporting the the pro-choice side. Then there was um, an instance during the the campaign when uh, suddenly we we start getting texts that on uh, Facebook had was revealing the sort the, the location of the admins of different campaign of of, of different accounts. And there we saw that some of the, actually some of the mainstream accounts, some of the kind of official campaign group accounts were being managed from the US, from Spain. I think there was another one from um, Italy and from different places, um, which I think uh, when you talk to to some folks kind of aligns with where I think some of the coordination around right wing, uh, right wing kind of issue groups tend to tend to congregate. And what else did you what else did you learn from looking at all of this data? I mean, one thing that struck me was um, that what was happening online was a reflection of what was happening in in the real debate. It was just magnified and it was um, much less traceable. It had a more malicious, a more malicious streak. So the the thing that I found just really quite worrying was the de- deliberate targeting of, of campaigners with uh, really quite graphic, quite quite graphic and disturbing images. And in particular, say campaigners who had shared a personal story of trauma being targeted in this way. Um, the, the, the thing that I kind of learned overall, so I was I was like in the zone of staring at this stuff for like 15 hours a day. And you know, when I spoke to sort of friends and, and colleagues who were who were engaging with the issue more broadly, I was in a different universe than the universe that 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 they were in. And my fear was that what was happening online was going to be what would determine what happened in, in, in the election. And it ended up not being. And so uh, one of the uh, you know kind of striking things for me was how much the broader democratic institutions and structures that we have in Ireland inoculated us to an extent against some of these efforts. So, uh, you know, there was a a poll a couple of weeks before the referendum about whether or not you thought your vote mattered and on a kind of a scale of one to ten. And at the one end was something like, I I can't remember the exact figures, but like maybe three percent of people, you know, vast, vast majority of people felt and knew that their vote would matter. And if you look at some of the disinformation campaigns globally, quite a lot of that is actually around voter suppression Mm -hmm. or, you know, trying to disincentivize people. I think as well, we're such a small country that there was no, like, you cannot live in a filter bubble in a country like Ireland. I have people in my life who were voting, who who were voting yes and who were voting no. And I I was engaging with them and I was having conversations with them. And we also still broadly watch the same news programmes. And on those news programmes, we have very strict rules about balance and that, you know, um, if you had a view from one side, you had to have a view from the other side. 
And, you know, there was, that's one of those things that's in question now because people are saying, well, actually, this was such a minority view. Why were they given equal weight? But I think it's crucial in a democracy that if we're going to counter disinformation or chaos that's happening in the digital world, you need to do it with good quality information people can trust, giving to them in the ways that they can access it. It comes down to the... What are your broader infrastructure? What is your broader election infrastructure like? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I think it's a, you raise a really interesting point around the size of Ireland as a country. And I'm thinking about the Scottish referendum as well. So I was in Scotland in the run-up to their independence referendum. And there were, you know, there was real live, good quality political dialogue. And I know there were times that that campaign, people involved felt that it got a bit nasty. But I think when you compare it to what's happened around the Brexit referendum in the UK, it doesn't, it doesn't look anywhere near as nefarious what took place. And I don't really have a question based on that. It's more a reflection on the fact that actually... You know, in Scotland, we managed to do a ref- they think they did the referendum reasonably well, and it was tight, and it hasn't led to national implosion, and maybe that's partly because Brexit has followed it. But the absence of filter bubbles in smaller communities and the kind of presence of big, large cities, I think, is an interesting uh, point. Yeah, another, um, if, if I may, like, we, we have proportional representation in Ireland as well. So, you know, um, I have four members of parliament for my district. I'll have, you know, when I vote at some point in the next 12 months, probably there'll be 12 names on the list and I get to rank them in in importance. So let's say a party who I am not a member of, I'm not going to be necessarily giving my first preference to, has to engage with me and reach out to me because they need my third preference or my fourth preference. That That's how most people get elected. And I think, uh, you know, the all of these digital threats to democracy wouldn't work if we had perfect democracies. You know, like you wouldn't be able to divide people 
with, frankly, JPEGs on the internet if there wasn't already deep divisions there. Uh, you know, you, you wouldn't be able to sort of spread this information in this way if there wasn't distrust in, in, in media sources. And I think, you know... Uh, Ireland has a very strong culture of referendums. We had a multi-step process in the run-up to that referendum, um, which allowed for engagement and debate and the airing of views to happen. And that happened um, with citizens and then then it happened um, in Parliament. And it was like, you know, people were live streaming the Parliament website, right? Because this this was a difficult um, debate and people, you know, have they know that they're going to have to vote they've done it before we're having our 38th refer- our 38th amendment um, I think it is next Friday um, and another one um, on, on whether or not to, to, to change our constitution so you know like I'm not going to get into the, 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 the Brexit vote but there has been some very very good analysis which looked at well actually you know referendums only work if you have the right context around it right and you know if if you have a and I'm a big fan of proportional representations this is my own bias but if you have electoral systems where um, your vote effectively doesn't matter um, because you're in a safe seat for a very long time I I lived in London for years and in that entire time I've received one electioneering leaflet um, and I've been registered to vote Irish citizens can vote here if you're not engaging with citizens if you're not constantly having to sort of um, in, in, engage with citizens then when it comes to when it, when it comes to democratic processes they're vulnerable right um, and that is what the digital threats kind of exposes is exposes our vulnerabilities and it gives people ways of, of, of tapping into that and of, and of exploiting those vulnerabilities Out of interest really quickly where do you live and who was your leaflet from? So that was um, when I was in Kensington and it was the Green Party. Cool. Um, my next question is around what in, what do you think, if anything, institutions or the big media data companies like Facebook and Google learned from the referendum process? I think that they've had a big learning curve in terms of why they need regulation. So I think they went from move fast and break things as their motto. When we we had great engagement with Facebook during the campaign, we had some kind of subterranean engagement with Google, with employees who were reaching out to us who were a little bit concerned. And they were saying that the kind of the policies of companies say that they must act within the bounds of the law. And that's been their constraint, right? Um, They have sort of said, we will act legally, but we are innovators. We are disrupting, you know, fundamental things about communication and community and, and how we engage with and talk to each other. And I think they sort of met so much resistance when you're doing that, right? And I, I know a lot of these sort of startup folks and, and everyone's a Luddite and nobody understands their vision and their dream, right? And they're right uh, in a way. And there are lots of people who will say, don't do that or that's a silly idea. And, you know, um, and so you have this kind of like, well, push through kind of culture. But they uh, they they ignored some of the right signals, but they, they also ignored some of the signals that, that they shouldn't have been ignoring. And that's in particular around some of the risks that were emerging from the technology. And I think they uh, there was this presumption that, well, we're acting legally, we'll keep going. Um, we, we've heard Mark Zuckerberg say repeatedly, and I was at an event in Brussels there on Monday where another Facebook representative was saying, regulate us, 
right? Give us rules, give us things that we have to operate within because what they're finding now is that the public expects them to do more than just not break the law, right? The public expects them to have an element of corporate responsibility. And we we, we all live at the moment in a completely unregulated space when it comes to the intersection of politics and uh, technology. And they are finding themselves right at the centre of that with no rules, with no guidebook. And they're effectively being told by different people, decide what's true, you know, Um, decide what counts as overseas interference, Um, you know, and, and they don't want to do that. And you know, I, I think that's been one one big learning curve from them is that um, regulation is a is is a form of protection for themselves, and so we have seen a bit of a we have seen a bit of a switch there. I think that's I think that's that's one major thing that they learned. Um, and when Facebook withdrew the ability of overseas groups um, to place ads in Ireland, a kind of a, a unilateral step, self regulatory step that they took. The explicit reason that they gave was, um, I think it was actually one of the UK groups had kind of reposted content by an Irish campaign and put money behind it. Okay, Um, in Ireland, there's no rule saying that an American organisation can't buy a political ad targeting Irish people because our rules haven't evolved. But an Irish, an American organisation or a British organisation can't give a donation or an in-kind, in-kind support to a campaign. So, so when they saw that, they asked the regulator, does this count? And I think in the absence of a response that they could, because the regulator doesn't know, uh, that was their rationale for withdrawing their service. Um, so I think the, the the need that they have for regulatory uncertainty was, was one thing, was one thing they had to learn. I think the second thing that they learned was, I, I think there was an assumption that privacy didn't sell, right? That wasn't a premium that we were willing to pay for. And when the the big Cambridge Analytica story broke earlier in the year, people I know were divided like into two camps. The camp of people who were like, WTF have they been doing with my information? This is absolutely terrifying. And the other folks I know who were like, but everyone has known this for years, right? And I think the 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 folks in that in that second camp were you know we are open like how do you think we make money <laughs> this is what we do you know you have signed the agreements you've done these things and there was a presumption that there was informed consent I think and there was a presumption that that this like that that privacy wasn't a thing that they could compete on that that they that they could um, do something around they were wrong it was that people didn't understand. Right, what was happening and its implications. So, if you were government and tech companies were looking at you for regulation, what would you be doing? Um, I would be telling them that they have a specific role in all of this. Right, their role is to be transparent and open about a what they are doing, the products they're developing, the way that their services work, and and b the actions of actors on their platform. So. I do not want a private company to decide what's true or not. I don't want them to decide uh, what counts as electoral integrity. What I do want them to do is to let other folks who have the capability and the understanding and the skills and the training and the complexities of all of those areas to know what's going on 
in real time, right? There's no good releasing things six months after a vote saying, oh, lads, by the way, we were all lying to you or all this stuff was going on um, because the vote still stands and the vote still has to stand, right? Um, what I think governments need to do, and this is really, really tricky, is work out what, um, in particular, electoral and political regulation looks like in the 21st century. We designed our systems for a time when, you know, Jonathan is running for election. So we care. <laughs> we care who's giving Jonathan money because if Jonathan gets elected, you know, he, he could potentially have a conflict of interest there. He might, you know, give them contracts to do whatever else. That's the way our system is designed, right? Our system isn't designed for some bloke in St. Petersburg to really care that Jonathan gets in for reasons that we can't decipher. I think that's really interesting because I am starting to think about the significance of kind of what I would term as borderless politics because I think once tech catches up through language to make people in different parts of the world be able to talk to each other, whatever their native language, in in real time, you're into a really interesting political space then. Yeah, and, and it's not just language. I think it's about values as well. So um, the pushback that we got from the US pro-life groups who were advertising in Ireland um, and they wrote all about me. <laughs> I was a Stalinist and I was everything. Um, but there, there's, there, there was some validity in their complaints. So what they were saying was they, they feel like an under an under attack group because they, they hold values which seem at the moment to be sort of counter um, to, to the direction of policy. And they need Need spaces to be able to organise and talk to each other um, and communicate. And if, and you know, and if, if I think in Ireland of the way um, that that we have achieved, say LGBT rights, that has been you know driven in large part because communities were able to organise and they were able to connect with folks in other countries who had achieved change for for the better. And so their point was, um, and you, you'll often hear this from the from the right, that they feel like they're being suppressed, um, and the, you know they were telling us that they have to pay online platforms to get their content shared because you know they're kind of pushed down by algorithms or whatever else it is. And I'm like, I I, I completely I, I I get that, and I think you know if you are a pro life um, activist in Ireland and you just lost two to one, right? The safeguard that you felt existed for your values in our constitution, you'd be feeling really really isolated right now. And like you have you have the right to connect right with people around you know who are probably going to be in other countries who can empathise with you and who can help you to 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 deal with that. There is a difference between that and my constitute the wording of my constitution mm. right and the rules and um, that i have to live under and the decisions that my supreme court will make you know community organizing and, and connecting and sharing of information is crucial right and it's, it's crucial for for democracy that is not the same thing as targeting people saying vote this way or vote that way or trying to sort of like determine public opinion right so that the laws um, that we all have to live under change but where do you draw those lines I think that's an excellent question, and it's one everybody's asking. Um, it's one we definitely asked on Government versus the Robots. What's next for you? So we um, in in Ireland, we actually the the government have committed to regulating this area, which I think is super exciting. There's a chance in Ireland, so we don't have an election commission, which is slightly terrifying. I was at um, uh, this big gathering of election commissions every two years. It is the nerdiest, most fantastic room you've ever been in in your life. And they held it in DC during the 2016 presidential election. 
so I was at that uh, I was at that event and you're going around the room and like you know there's Nigeria and there's the Philippines and there's you know Sweden and there's whatever there was no Irish representative in the room because we literally don't have an election commission but in a way you know like the UK election commission at the moment they have all sorts of things coming out um, about how they need to reform how they need to adapt the laws need to change etc um, in, in Ireland we're starting from scratch. So we get to design and build institutions that really are fit for the 21st century. So, so the government have a consultation out at the moment on on what regulation of, of ads should look like. So um, myself and uh, my partners in the project, um, uh, Craig Dwyer, Peter Tannum, and um, some folks in, in one of our universities in, in, in UCD are uh, doing a submission into that. But we're also sort of working now with uh, broader civil society groups to try and get some momentum behind that and I am aware that I have kind of myopic views on these things and that you know you, you need to bring in you need to bring in different perspectives um, about again the, what are the potential harmful implications of whatever changes that we want to make Having said that, I, I think so my 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 work, my kind of paid work all, all of that all the Irish stuff is voluntary my, my paid work, um, has always been sort of working internationally um, and, uh, you know, bridging this sort of um, divide between your kind of your, your your wealthy countries, your OECD countries and sort of what's happening in countries in countries that are less developed. Um, and I was at this, this at this event I was at in Brussels, the um, the foreign minister for Ukraine was speaking um, and they have, I mean, huge challenges when it comes to, um, to cyber threats and they have elections coming up next year. And his point, which I thought was, was quite interesting, was... If you want to know what's going to happen in, you know, your NATO alliance countries in a couple of years time, look at Ukraine now. Hmm. Right. And um, if we want to know what's going to happen with closed networks and in particular, your sort of WhatsApps um, in terms of the the information environment, you know, here in, in, in Europe in a year or two, we need to look at what's been happening in, in Burma, Myanmar. We need to look at what's happening in so the Brazilian elections, which were recently held. All of the advertising was driving people towards closed channels. And so I, I think there's, we need to be connecting up the dots. Like we have a lot of power in governments um, in, uh, I think, especially say countries like the UK, Ireland and the US, where these companies are responsive, right? When our parliament calls them in, they go in. If you're sitting in Sierra Leone, um, you're in a very, very different power situation. Um, and so I think when we as um, as governments who have that power are regulating and are um, setting the tone, like we saw with GDPR, it doesn't just affect Europe, like these, these things are broader. We need to make sure that, that the perspectives and the insights from what's happening in other contexts are a part of of what we're asking and they're, they're a part of what we're regulating. Um, the, the, Council of, the Council of Europe are, are doing some interesting thinking at the moment about, you know, what are the potential implications of signals that we are sending from Europe about um, even, say, traceability. Like, so, like, the ability to know who's behind a blogger, who's behind a poster, who's behind these things. How is that translating into really, really repressive rules um, in other countries? So, for example, in, in Tanzania, um, if you want to set up a blog now, you need a licence. The licence, I think, costs, and this, this is not an exact figure, but something in the region of $1,500, which is an impossible sum of money if you're in Tanzania. But if we're if we're sending signals, okay, that they can be misused in, in, in other contexts. So I think what's what's next is some 
some way of being involved in pushing forward those conversations, right, of what does the regulatory response to this look like? What do governments need to do? What do technology companies to do? What do we need in terms of freedom of speech and, and, and media and the right to investigate and all these other things? And what do we need in terms of how are we equipping citizens to, to, to exist in the information environment that we're creating? Liz, if you had uh, advice for somebody trying to create effective campaigns in the kind of current digital environment from everything you've seen studying the Irish referendum so closely, what would your advice be? Well, my advice, I think, would would probably be about the particular problems that campaigns have of dealing with the fact that other people are trying to undermine them, right? And are trying to uh, basically spread lies that make them look bad or or that counter them. And actually, so I I, I got an email recently from a campaigner who's who's working in a referendum. I, I won't say what country, but, you know, there's all sorts of rubbish circulating and videos and Twitter accounts, and all these kind of things, um, completely undermining them, what they do, lying about their sources of funding, you know anybody who's involved in campaigning will <laughs> will 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 possibly recognize this but my advice to her was if you engage with that they win right one of the strategies that exists is to distract you and is to get you to be engaging on their level and uh, you have a plan, right? Um, you know, you're, you you have your messaging plan. You've got seven weeks to go. This week is 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 issue X. Like, just militantly stick to that plan because I think quite often, and you know, I experience this personally. You know, you are looking at your mention. You're looking at the inside. You're looking at these things that are happening, and you just see saturation of this malignant content and things. Other people don't see that. Right. Other people see what you are putting out. Once campaigns start to go down the, the line of trying to counter some of this disinformation themselves, they can, you know, end up spreading it further. Don't know how many times you've been on Twitter and you've seen it and the thing saying, oh, the things in the paper today about me are lies. And you immediately Google. <laughs> what are they saying about them? Right. You're propagating and, and you're sharing and you're sharing this information. It is so much less powerful if we don't engage and if we don't counter it and if we stick with our plans. The the only large scale way for us to deal with this problem is going to be to strengthen our democratic institutions, to have trust, right, uh, and to, to build trust with people that what we say is true and that are, you know, being transparent about our motives um, and just focusing relentlessly on saturating with good, good quality information. Liz, this has been the earliest ever recording of Government versus the Robot. So thank you for getting out of bed well before dawn and talking to me. It's been a fascinating conversation. It's been super, and I, I'm a big fan of the podcast. So keep up, keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank, thanks, William John. That's it for this week's Government versus the Robots. But in the coming weeks, we'll be talking about how government institutions can retain their legitimacy, which technologies are the most transformative for public service delivery, and what active citizenship looks like during the age of the fourth industrial revolution. As ever, if you've enjoyed the show, please do tell your friends about it. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at G-O-V-T underscore V-S Robots. My thanks as ever to Sky Redman for her help with the editing and production of this podcast, and we'll be back next time.